right now, we are in chapter 9 tonight. We're doing Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> We're going to do the whole chapter. And as we begin chapter 9, we find Daniel praying. Daniel was a prayer. Remember what he said when they were going to, or what he did when they were going to throw him in the lion's den? He went and he prayed three times, and it says, as was his custom. He prayed three times throughout the day, every day, as was his lifelong custom. So you got a man with holy habits, and holy habits produced a holy life. I am such a believer in habits that are good habits. I have a habit of getting into the Word of God every morning, going through the Bible in a year, which I'm going to lead our whole church to do starting in January. We're all going to go through the Bible in a year together. We're going to do it together. We're we're working on it right now. And if you will read it, we're going to do it together. Now, Daniel had holy habits. They created a holy life. And that holy life made him the recipient of incredible revelations from God. Now, he's interceding for his people in chapter 9. And this intercession goes on from verse 3 through verse 20. And it's a magnificent example of what true intercessory prayer is really all about. The chapter begins with Daniel giving us the timing of when all of this takes place. Daniel 9, 1 and 2. Here's the timing. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign. So here we have the first year of the reign of the Medes and Persians, who just overthrew the Babylonians. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. What he's telling us is this, and you'll find it if you read the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah predicted. Remember, Jeremiah was the the prophet who warned Judah for decades that they were going to go into captivity, and they didn't listen to him, and they even imprisoned him and persecuted him and tortured him. And Jeremiah was able to see them carried off into captivity, not that he wanted to, but he saw it just like he had predicted. He saw his own prophecies fulfilled. When he was writing his book, he said, Judah, you're going, you're going to go into captivity and you will be there for 70 years, which is amazing because they were there 70 years. Now, Daniel was part of the captivity. And what he's doing is, as they've been there for, he knows they've been there for a number of years, several decades, he has been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And he knows that Jeremiah said 70 years. So he starts seeking God, Lord, is our time drawing near? Because you said 70 years. So that's what's motivating this intercessory prayer time of Daniel's. It's the first year of the reign of the Medes and Persians following the overthrow of Belshazzar who saw the handwriting on the wall. You remember that. And we find Daniel doing what he's always done, praying and seeking God no matter who was in power, no matter what was going on around him. 
his holy habits of prayer and worship of God carried him through every trial. And now Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the head of gold, Babylon, <coughs> excuse me, being replaced with the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, you remember the man that, that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, the, the, the big colossal man had the head of gold and, and Daniel interpreted that to be Babylon. And then this colossal man had a um, chest and arms of silver. And Daniel had prophesied this would be the Medes and the Persians. So now he has seen his own prophecy come to pass and Nebuchadnezzar's dream come to pass. Daniel's dream. Daniel had a dream. Daniel's dream of the great beast that looked like a lion. That was Babylon. And of the bear with three ribs in its mouth. That was the Medes and Persians. So Daniel had a dream with different characters, but it had to do with the same thing, the fall of Babylon being replaced by the Medes and Persians, the eventual fall of the Medes and Persians being replaced by the Greeks, and then the eventual fall of the Greeks being replaced by the Romans. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about it. Daniel had a dream about it. God never moves but what he tells his prophets. Now God has allowed Daniel to live long enough to see Babylon taken down and the kingdom that he dreamed about and that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about being installed. Now I notice here that Daniel always blossomed where he was planted. When he was under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was a total pagan. He was in a pagan culture but he refused to assimilate into paganism. He maintained his spiritual walk with God, which every believer must do. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what is the acceptable, good, and perfect will of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So the same thing Daniel did, we're to do. We are in the world, but not of it. We are in it, but we are not to assimilate to it. We are strangers in a strange land. We are looking for a new city whose builder and maker is God. Amen? <clears throat> now, next he begins his prayer. And, and let's look at his prayer. It's a model intercessory prayer. And I'm going to read through most of it, but I'm going to pause every once in a while and make a little commentary. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayers and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So notice he is in humility. He is humbling himself. And notice the phrase, set my face. I set my face toward the Lord God. This shows Daniel's complete resolve to seek the Lord. Nothing is going to distract him or stop him from doing what he set his face to do. It is said of our Lord Jesus. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to deter him from going to the cross. He set his face. He set his face like a flint. You know, there are times you've got to make up your mind to seek God where you literally say, I'm setting my face like a flint. There is nothing. There's no devil in hell. There's no human on earth. 
There is no distraction. There is nothing that's going to prevent me from seeking God and praying this thing through. Now let's read the account. And I want to point out some of the the key ingredients to genuine intercessory prayer. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession. And I said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Now notice he begins by praising God for his goodness. How do you start a really good prayer session? You enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. I mean, listen, don't ever start a real prayer time without thanking God. Okay? That's the gateway into his presence. You want your prayer time to be saturated in the spirit of God. Now look at verse 5. He says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. Now remember, he's in Babylon and they're in captivity. So look what he says. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts, and your judgments. Now look, he confesses the sins of Israel. First and foremost, what does he confess? That they departed from God's word. That's the first first thing he confesses. He said, man, Lord, the beginning of our pain was when we departed from your word. How many of you have ever been through a time in your life where you drifted from the word and you didn't drift into a good place when you drifted from the word? That's why you got to get into it every day. Every day, because every day, it's the way to start the day. Forget Wheaties. That's not the breakfast of champions. The word of God is. All right. Then verse 6, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Not only had Israel forsaken God's word, they had also turned a deaf ear to God's warnings through his prophets. <clears throat> Big mistake. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. As it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you, O Lord, to us. Now, notice he's not saying to them, but Daniel is including himself in this repentance, although he's only one of two men in the whole Bible where there's no recorded sin, minus Jesus. No recorded sin. And yet he includes himself in this heavy-duty repentance. He said, Lord, it's us. It's us. To us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Notice there's no excuse making. He's not passing the buck. They were guilty before God and Daniel owns it. You know, God can never heal you until you repent. Repentance is a beautiful word. How many of you are thankful that you are able to repent? Man, where would we be if we just, you know, I feel sorry for people who say, I have no sin. I read in John today, if you say you have no sin, you make him a liar and the truth is not in you. So Daniel's owning it and his confession in verse 9 continues, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, 
<coughs> to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. He appeals here to God's mercy, knowing that they don't deserve mercy. He's saying, we're guilty as charged, says Daniel, but God, I'm appealing to your mercy. We don't deserve it, but I'm asking you to give it. Hebrews 4 doesn't say, let us come therefore boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find the grace to help in the hour of need. In the next few verses, Daniel recognizes that God's judgment has fallen on them. He knows they're in the judgment of God. That's why they're in Babylon. Verse 11, the second half. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us. By bringing upon us, what did he bring upon them? Say it with me. A great disaster. So much for God doesn't judge. God doesn't bring uh, any kind of judgment on people. He's just a good kind of grandfather in heaven who's always saying, oh, I understand why you're, you're in sin. That's okay. Just go have a good time. Now, there's always a payday someday if you live in sin. And he says, you brought on us, Lord, great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn our, from our iniquities and understand your truth. They're almost done with their captivity, and he's saying, Judah, captive in Babylon, has not even collectively repented yet. Go figure. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. He's saying we deserve your judgment, but I'm appealing for mercy and forgiveness. Now, I want you to notice what Daniel believed. He believed that prayer could change the fate of a nation. You see that in there? He's praying for, the, for his nation, and he's asking God to change things, to set them free, to send them back home to where they can rebuild what they lost. And so we need to believe that God can change, and I believe he is changing the fate of a nation. Now he next, once more, boldly appeals to God's mercy Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. They lost their testimony. Now, therefore, verse 17, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. Mm, which is desolate. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. He said, I can't ask you, Lord, to have mercy based on anything we've done right. I'm asking you to have mercy because you're a merciful God. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, after this prayer, let me ask you, were they released? Did God release them from captivity? Yes, he did. Just a few, just shortly after this, it wasn't far from this prayer that God released them. So, you know what? God heard this prayer. God heard this prayer because Cyrus, the Persian, the king of Persia, will one day say to them, to Nehemiah, his cupbearer, go back and rebuild your city and take all of the people that want to go with you with you and go. And they were released from captivity. Now next, we come to one of the most difficult prophetic passages in the entire Bible. It's called Daniel's 70-week prophecy. But I'm going to make it simple to understand. You're going to get it. You know what you're going to do? You're going to have a great big praise God moment when we see this prophecy and what God did as far as fulfilling the vast majority of it. Now let's look at verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, he just means there that he looked like a man because Gabriel ain't no man. Forgive the slang, but it's good preaching. (laughs) Whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now say with me, prayer brought a breakthrough. Do you see this? I mean, hey, if Gabriel shows up and says hello to you, you've had a breakthrough. Now I want you to notice, based on Daniel's prayer, that the mighty archangel Gabriel was not only sent to him, but was caused to fly swiftly. Oh, I'm looking forward to having a glorified body because I believe we're going to be able to fly. Say, you really believe that, Jeff? Absolutely. Jesus would think and be there. And if the angels can fly, the redeemed are going to have greater things than the angels. And he was flying swiftly. Now, that's probably where we get this idea of the little Cupid-looking things, the little angels that look like little cherubs. And they got the wings and they're flying around on clouds playing harps. Uh Uh-uh. Gabriel, a real angel, is an awesome, huge, (coughs) colossal, frightening being. And so Gabriel begins to talk to him. And boy, does he have a word for him. Verse 22. He informed me and he talked with me. And he said, oh, Daniel, I've now come forward to give you skill to understand. Everybody say, God opens my eyes. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. 
Now, once again, I need to point out that at the very, very beginning of Daniel's prayer, the command went out from God's throne to answer him at the very beginning, the minute he began to pray. But it took time and perseverance in prayer before Gabriel arrived on the scene. That's why I tell you, just because you haven't gotten an immediate answer to, uh, answer to your prayer doesn't mean God has said no. He might be saying, wait and persevere because you might be in spiritual warfare. Daniel persevered, and here's Gabriel. Now, here comes the prophecy, starting in verse 24. Everybody perk up, pay real close attention, because we're about to do some math. Seventy weeks, said Gabriel, are determined. Now, look who for. Your people and your city, so that's the Jewish people and Jerusalem, to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Who do you reckon this is talking about? Everybody say Jesus. Because only one person finished transgression, made an end of sins, made reconciliation for iniquity, brought in everlasting righteousness, and was anointed the most holy. Now, a week, notice he says, 70 weeks are determined for all these things in verse 24 to happen. 70 weeks. Now, a week in this prophecy is not comprised of seven 24-hour days like we would talk about a normal week, but it's seven years. Each day in the week represents one year. So if you multiply 70 weeks times seven years in each week, you have 490 years. 70 times seven, 490. We have 70 weeks times seven years 490 years. So let's start verse 24 again. 490 years are determined for your people and for your holy city. And on down it goes. Everybody with me? Everybody say 490 years. years. Gabriel is informing Daniel that on God's calendar, some major, key, pivotal, history-changing events are decreed for Israel and it will be accomplished within 490 years. Now, we're going to see that these 490 years are divided into three sections. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. I'm going to read it. We're going to read it, so don't don't worry. But we're going to see that it's divided into three sections. A seven-week section, which is 49 years. A 62-week section which is 434 years, if you do your math, and one week, which is seven years. If you add all that together, it's 49 years, 434 years, and seven years is 490. So let's see how all this went down. The next verse says something astonishing. 
Remember, God's people are at this point, when Daniel receives this, they're in Babylonian captivity. And their 70 years of captivity predicted by the prophet Jeremiah are almost up. The time for them to be released back to their homeland is drawing near. And this is why Daniel's praying in the very first place. So let's read the next verse, 25, slowly. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So let's just make it easy and say 69 weeks. Now, but he broke it up into two sections, seven and 62. So that tells us that something very relevant is going to happen in seven weeks or 49 years. And then in 434 years or 62 weeks. So what happens in the first seven weeks or 49 years? Well, that's easy. Jerusalem, says Gabriel, would be restored in seven weeks or 49 years. Isn't that what he just said in verse 25? To restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So what happens in those seven weeks or 49 years? If we go into history, it's easy to find it took the Jews 49 years to restore Jerusalem from the time of their release. It's in the record books. They did it in seven weeks or 49 years. So there's the first seven weeks. Everybody say seven weeks done. I think it's pretty cool that Gabriel had added, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Well, we know this is what happened based on what we read in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to know how this went down, read Nehemiah. Because we know that the Jews' enemies, like Samballat and Tobiah, they were persecuting them and always trying to hinder their work and, and put fear on them and, and stop them, fought them tooth and nail from rebuilding the wall and the temple. So they rebuilt that city in troublesome times, just like Gabriel said. And they did it in seven weeks, 49 years. So, say with me, the first seven weeks fulfilled. fulfilled. Now we come to the next one, 62 weeks. Let's read on. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks to restore Jerusalem and 62 weeks from the from the completion of the restoration of Jerusalem, when they were done restoring it, then the next 62 weeks kicked in, or 434 years. Everybody stay with me now. They, 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 they go in there, they rebuild the wall, they rebuild the temple, they restore Jerusalem, and it takes 49 years. It takes those seven weeks. Then as soon as that's done then that 62 weeks kicks in. And what is 62 times 7? 434. So something is supposed to 
last 434 years or take that long from the finishing of the restoration of Jerusalem until what? The Messiah. Look at verse 26 carefully. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Who was it for? It was for us. This is an amazing prediction of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is cut off or killed, not for himself, but for the whole world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believed on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, let's do a little more math. Gabriel tells Daniel that from the time God's people are released to rebuild Jerusalem to the cutting off of Messiah will be 62 weeks. That's 434 years. Now, let's do a little more math. King Cyrus of the Persians gave the decree for the Jews to return to their homeland around 458 B.C. If you take that date and add 434 years to it, Daniel's 62 weeks, it takes us almost precisely to the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. This is a profound prediction and fulfillment. You know what the chances of somebody being able to do this are? Nostradamus could not hold a candle to this. Nobody looking in a crystal ball can do this. This is, this is Daniel being visited by Gabriel. Gabriel said, I'm going to give you understanding of what's coming for your people. It's going to take them 49 years from the time they're released to rebuild their city. Then it's going to take 434 more years for the whole reason I started the Jewish race to come to pass. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to start the Semitic race so that from that race would come Messiah. And now Gabriel is telling him exactly how long it's going to take, four centuries and 34 years. And you can do the math. If you go into history, it's easy to go into history books. There's lots of places you can access to find this out. But the chances of anyone being able to accurately prognosticate the timing of all these events coming together at once is unfathomable unless you happen to be God. Okay? Now, that takes care of seven weeks, 49 years for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And 62 weeks or 434 years of history leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. So we have one week left to reach the total of 70 weeks because there's one left. 483 years are used up. They've already come to pass. So let me ask you a question. If he was right on the seven weeks, 49 years, and he was right on the 434 years or 62 weeks, you reckon he's right about the final week? Oh, yeah. Daniel continues. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, 
The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, but then he shall confirm a covenant with many for what? There's your last week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination or the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And I'm going to make sense of this for you. The final week in Daniel's prophecy is revealed right here in verse 27. It will begin when the Antichrist cuts a peace deal with Israel for one week or seven years. You see, the Antichrist is the he in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years. How long is the great tribulation? Seven years. So this one week is very, very crucial. It's yet to happen. And we're watching the whole world prepare for this final week. Now I want you to think of the numerous American presidents that have all tried and failed. I remember Jimmy Carter trying to bring a peace deal all the way back with Onward all of that. Remember that? If you were around back then? I remember virtually every president that I can remember since Carter has tried to do it. And they have failed. You know why? Because it's never going to happen until the man of sin, the Antichrist, brokers peace treaty. Think, just think of, think of all the different, and, and where is the eye of the world right now when it comes to conflict and a, a conflict that nobody seems to be able to fix and, and, and it vexes the whole world? Where does it originate from? <clears throat> that tiny piece of real estate smaller than New Jersey, Israel. Now, the Bible mentions this elsewhere. The Bible warns us of fruitless attempts to bring Middle East peace, and there will be no peace in Israel or the world until Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach in Hebrew, returns at the very end of the coming seven-year apocalypse. And only then are we going to have real peace because Antichrist will bring a false peace. Now listen to Ezekiel. I I believe that both the verses I'm about to read to you are, are at least alluding to this peace treaty that Antichrist will do. Because, even because they have seduced my people, Israel, saying peace, and there was no peace. And then Jeremiah 8, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people, Israel, slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Antichrist will step onto the world stage, and one of the things that will make him mega famous is he will pull this off. It'll be on CNN, Fox, all the networks, MSLSD, I mean MSNBC. I'm sorry. It, it'll, it'll be on all the networks. I can't help myself when it comes to that one. I, anyway, um, they'll all be blasting the headline, peace in the Middle East, peace in the Middle East, finally peace in the Middle East, and they'll be panning on to 
and pulling in tight on a man. I don't know who, but he'll be smiling. He'll be magnetic. He'll be charismatic. He'll be persuasive. He'll be convincing. He'll be promising. And, and folks, listen, the world will place their trust in him. Now, I used to wonder, how could that ever happen in America? I don't wonder anymore. Oh, no. <clears throat> let, me, let me read you something out of the New Testament. The Bible warns to beware of peace movements when it comes to the Middle East. Paul writes, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the coming apocalypse, that's the day of the Lord, so comes as a thief in the night. Nobody will be expecting it. For when they say what? Peace and safety. Then what comes? Sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Then he talks to the church. But you, brethren, meaning believing Christians who have put their faith and trust in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, you are not in darkness so that this day, the coming apocalypse, should overtake you as a thief. Because you ought to understand the times, especially if you're going to turning point. Because we go into this a lot. <clears throat> Woe to the churches that have put the word of God aside and gone into a bunch of gobbledygook and new age stuff. Amen. They don't have a clue. Listen, we need to have our noses buried in the word of God. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> halfway, here's what's going to happen. Halfway through the final week, three and a half years in, Antichrist is going to show the world who he really is. And he's going to break this treaty and commit the abomination of desolation. Look what Daniel says. And I guarantee you it's going to happen in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years. He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. One of the things that he's going to do is he's going to somehow work it where the Jews can reinstitute their old sacrificial system. And they will, they will have their Old Testament sacrificial system back into play in a rebuilt temple. And that's one of the things that's going to convince them, this guy's for us because he's given us back our religion. But three and a half years in, this man, personal pronoun, is, he's not an idea, it's not a metaphor, he's referred to as a man and as he, the personal pronoun he, singular, this man will walk into the temple and he will go into the Holy of Holies and he will commit the abomination of desolation. Now, we've already gone over that Antiochus Epiphanes did that in the Old Testament and he, he took a pig into the Holy of Holies and desecrated it and that was called the abomination of desolation. But Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about another one to come. So it can't be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and looking backward. He's looking forward to this happening again. And we know here it's the Antichrist because on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. That's the abomination of desolation Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. He's confirming Daniel. And when he commits the abomination of desolation, 
the Jews freak out. Oh, my Lord. He's not who we thought. Now, I don't know what the abomination will be. If you went through Revelation with me, then you know that it might be an image of him. Bible in Revelation talks about an image. He makes the image in there speak. He makes the image to talk, to communicate. I don't know, but we don't need to know. We just need to know that in that seven year, that last week, that halfway in it, he walks in and does this. And when he does, all hell breaks loose. And persecution, persecution is unleashed on the Jewish people. We thought he was our friend. Peace, peace, they say, when suddenly there is no peace and tribulation comes upon them like a woman in childbirth. We thought he was for us. He's against us. He fooled us. He lied to us. Yes, because he's the representation of the father of lies. And then Daniel says, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So one week remains, church, in Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks. One week remains. The other 69 are done, and they happen just like he said. 49 years, 434 years. 434 years from when they finished Jerusalem to when Jesus was hung on the cross. Now we got one week left. When is it going to kick in? Here's when it's going to kick in. And I'm going to close with this. It kicks in when a peace covenant is signed that is seven years long. If you wake up and CNN and MSLSD and Fox and CBS and all of them are blasting about a peace tree that is seven years long and look at this guy who did it. Ooh, lift up your heads. Because we're in, now the hourglass is turned upside down and we're in the last week. Now, I think this has been very clear. This isn't really bad, is it? This is clear. Isn't this clear? So you don't need to be ever afraid or intimidated by Bible prophecy because God wouldn't give it if he didn't expect us to understand it. So how many of you can say, thank God I'm saved? Amen. Amen. So we're going to deal next time. I want to deal more. I want to go a little bit deeper into this whole final week, and we're going to do another chapter in Daniel. I mean, we're making good time, though we've had lots of interruptions. We're getting major distance, a chapter every time we come in here. So we're going to finish this. And how many of you are glad you came tonight? Let's stand up together, can we? Can you say with me, God's got everything under control. Do you see how he's the, he's the God of history? The history is his story. He knows what's coming. Lord, thank you for your mighty word.